The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. The 2022 federal election exposed wide dissatisfaction with the conduct of many journalists on the campaign trail and the apparent bias of much campaign analysis. Journalists seemed more concerned with catching politicians out than helping the public understand their vision and priorities for the country. At Antidote 2022, journalists Madison Connaughton, Barry Cassidy, Osman Faruqi and Janine Parrott came together to ask, is there something fundamentally wrong with Australian media? This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, My name is Madison Connaughton and I'm your host for this panel, How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Media? Today we're on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation who have cared for this country since before time. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Gadigal land. The Australian media. I think everyone on stage and probably a lot of you in the audience have a complicated relationship with it. But is there something fundamentally wrong with the media? Is it broken? And if so, how do we fix it? We have an esteemed panel here to discuss. Um, Beside me is Barry Cassidy, who has been a journalist for over 55 years, a political correspondent, a press secretary, a political advisor to Bob Hawke, a foreign correspondent and the creator and host of Insiders for 18 years. Next to him is Janine Perrett, who's uh, worked across all sections of the Australian media for over 40 years as the Australian's US correspondent, a reporter and presenter on Channel 9, and the host of the Perrett Report on Sky News. More recently, she's been a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and Crikey, and a guest presenter on Media Watch. Finally, we have Osman Faruqi, the Culture News Director at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, who was previously Head of Audio at Schwartz Media and Editor and and Reporter at the ABC. Please welcome the panel. I want to jump into it because there's a lot to discuss. My first question, Barry, is for you. Um, And I guess it was hard to miss that Uh, during the election campaign, you made some headlines on election night uh, with some tweets about the coverage of of the election. Um, I was wondering if you could take us behind those tweets a little. Like, what was the frustration that led you to kind of critiquing how the media was covering that result? Um, Well, you know, when I look at the media, obviously I look at political reporting because that's what I've been doing for 30 or 40 years. And the most recent... um, um, performance by the media to judge was their performance during the uh, federal election campaign. And I thought they made the same mistakes through that campaign as they almost always make. Um, That when an election is called, it's almost as if the media resets the clock and says the contest starts now. Mm. And they start reporting it like a football match as if every day is another kick or whatever. And whatever issues emerge through that campaign could make or break the parties. And that's nowhere near the truth. 
Um, elections are won and lost based on the performances of governments over three years and the viability of the opposition to replace them. And if you do it in the way that they do, and that is um, just separate out the performance through an election campaign, you don't get a sense of what's really driving people and, and what's really driving the votes. Um, the gaffe on day one, Anthony Albanese's gaffe around unemployment figures, I went on the project that night and I was asked, seriously asked, is that the end? Has he lost the election? <laughs> Based on a single gaffe. And I said, well, yes, if you ignore inaction on climate change, if you ignore the government's refusal to inter introduce a federal ICAC, if you ignore Scott Morrison going away to Hawaii during the bushfires and all the sort of lack of responsibility that flowed from that, if you ignore all of those issues, then yes, of course, Anthony Albanese's gaffe is going to determine the election. Like, it's just, but that's the mindset. Mm. And so what happened through the campaign then, I think the independence better identified the major issues that were going to drive the vote than the mainstream media, mm. far and away. They, they decided, um, they, they campaigned on climate change, they campaigned on integrity in government and respect for women. And I think that all of those issues resonated, that perhaps the one that they didn't run hard on and they, um, was um, Morrison himself and, and his, uh, his performance over three years and how that was playing out. So that was my frustration. And, and also the, the campaigns now are reduced to two doorstops. The, leader, the, the, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition have a doorstop every day and they build, particularly television, build their reports around those doorstops. And of course, they, they can't maintain enough through those doorstops to, and so what, they, they turn up and they hijack them. And, and it, it just, it was an outrageous performance, day in and day out, at both doorstops, not just um, um, at uh, Albanese doorstop, Morrison's as well, um, when they'd turn up and they would turn it into a circus mm. and there would be all this hectoring and yelling and shouting and, and, and that's basically because they were boring otherwise. And it's just, and so again, I just found that that basic error of refusing to go back and analyse what are the key drivers over three years? What are the, the key issues that we need to discuss? Climate change, which clearly had a, an enormous impact on the election result. We saw uh, the Greens win seats in Queensland, for God's sake. We, we, saw, <laughs> um, we saw six independents won campaigning strongly on climate change. Labor won seats from the Liberals on, on climate change. And yet, according to the ANU study, it came in seventh. As um, as the uh, the most popular issue raised by the media, so yeah, that was essentially my frustration with it. Do you see that as illustrative of bigger issues in the media, or is this like an election issue? Because elections, they're a pressure cooker. No one slept for six weeks. You're probably not doing your best reporting by week six. Yeah. <laughs> you're on a bus. You're doing like there are all these extraneous factors. Is what happened during the election campaign with the media coverage? kind of illustrative of a bigger issue? Yeah, because even through those three years, um, I just don't think the focus is there on policies in, in the way that it should be, um, that it's becoming more and more about the personalities. And, and look, really, if, if you relied on, um, on the mainstream media coverage over three years, do you really think people had a decent steer about what was about to happen on election night? You know, I don't think they did. I, I, and I think they, um, people would, a lot of people would have bought the, and, and the ABC was as guilty of this as anybody else, but this theory that you heard it every day that um, Scott Morrison's a great campaigner 
and he'll pull this out of the fire at the last minute. He's a great campaigner. They, by then, were sick of the sound of his voice. He was not a great campaigner. And, and the other argument was, even if he's in trouble, they've, they've got big doubts about Albanese. Mm. Well, they didn't. Janine, <laughs> does what Barry's saying resonate with you or, or do you feel like the election was as badly covered as perhaps he does? Well, yeah, I wasn't only impressed with it either, but it's always been nuts or it's been moving to this direction. Barry said himself they cover elections as they always do when the bell rings. So it's not like this is new. This has been a trend they have been doing. I mean, you could put it down to, I guess, television. I remember when that was going to threaten the integrity of journalism. Well, it has. Um, Moving to a US-style presidential style where it's about the personalities. I think we're seeing that too. These are things we're seeing. To me, the most outrageous thing that we saw in the election is something we didn't see at the time. I mean, it's a real bugbear of mine. We had a correspondent for a national newspaper who was aware of something that was fundamentally important, a prime minister who took a number of ministries, and he sat on that during it. Now, I think that might have had a material effect. I'm always stunned that the Australian wasn't a bit worried that didn't or chose not to. But to me, that says everything about it, that that was not a big enough story that we could sit and hold that. I mean, we saw the outcome anyway, but the voting wasn't, it's not, it wasn't the landslide that it should have been or could have been if it was what Barry says, that people were sick of the sight of Morrison, which they were, but they would have been a hell of a lot. They would have, I think, had a very different view if they'd known the full truth. So omission is as bad as the behaviour. And the behaviour, let's be honest, as I say, it's television. It's theatre these days. Mm -hmm. It's about entertaining people at night. One more thing on that. There was a report just came out this week, I think Laurie Oakes and Heather Riddout did, on coverage. And one of the key things, uh, I don't know if it was just about the election, but coverage generally, uh, was the importance of people like Laura Tingle doing business. Now, as a former business reporter, I always think it's about the economy stupid. And it was never a more important election with the cost of living and all the things that were happening that you mightn't have known about. So those things are important. But, you know, business can be a bit boring. So that's what happens. And so you mentioned the secret ministries story. Um, obviously, um, there are some reporters from The Australian who who knew that Scott Morrison um, held many more ministries than the public knew um, and held that back for a book. Um, like, that's, that's pretty striking. I, I was thinking what if Scott Morrison had won the election and that came out after, given the public response. Well, it would have. The book came out soon <laughs> afterwards. We would have found out. Not if it had come out the day of the gaffe. Uh. <laughs> it wouldn't have got a run at all. <laughs> um, but th- that is a tricky one, though, because if you write a book, you're doing it separately to the work you're doing for your employer. And you do tend to hold stuff back. Like, you, you want to sell a book mm. at the end of the day. But then there are degrees. And this was just way too big. Mm. You just can't, in the atmosphere of an election campaign, gain that information and gain it from the Prime Minister mm. himself and then hold it back. That's not good enough. Oz, you're um, part of a new guard of reporters. <laughs> Allegedly, uh, yeah. a, a millennial reporter, as they say. Mm. Um, what's your perspective on this issue? Because it does feel like there is this, like, malaise around mm. the media, right? You go on Twitter and it's extremely negative about the media, um, rightly or wrongly, not saying that it's it's not warranted, but you look at trust polls and, you know, the Australian media is the only... Um, institution that's 
not trusted by a majority of the population mm. this year, according to Edelman. Like, what is going on with this sort of malaise around the media from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've been both one of these people on Twitter criticising the media. I've also been one of the people criticised for being part of the media. So I've sort of seen a few different perspectives to this. Um, I think the the election is an interesting... I think basically everything that you zoom in on about the election applies to everything else across the media landscape, across issues in society. But no one is paying as much attention to things as much as they are when, when the campaign is on. I think what is so fascinating about the election and the way it's run... And it filters out into these other areas as well. And Janine hit the nail on the head. Is Even though we live in an era where the internet is far more dominant than television and television ratings have never been smaller and less influential, the media events, the way that the media orchestrates itself, the way that politicians interact with the media are still designed for that era. Those press conferences exist to create television packages. And you see this thing that happens around election times where most of the most egregious reporting isn't really being done by the traditional news writers. It's being done by people who host segments on commercial breakfast television who now are being sent on this bus to chase the prime minister and the opposition leader and get a three-minute package. And I think that drives this kind of insane... Uh, desire to get the most wacky thing. And I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, the politicians seem absurd, the journalists seem absurd, I'm going to switch off. And I think that's that's a real, it's a, it's a real structural problem. But I think the bigger problem, and I think this, this goes to what Barry was saying in terms of they missed, the media at large missed the big issues in terms of the, the issues around climate, around the economy, but also in terms of the fact that there was going to be a bunch of independents who won and the Greens were doing really well in places like Queensland. If journalists were maybe more connected to the issues that were so important to Australians, they probably wouldn't have missed those stories. And sometimes you see journalists say things that make no sense, but they act like they've got this line to the to the mainstream Australian when they clearly just have a line to a spin doctor in a, in a politician's yeah. office. Like when, when the Catherine Deves issue blew up, there was these weird stories appearing across the media landscape that this was a genius move by Scott Morrison to get Western Sydney transphobes out of their homes and into the polling booths to vote for... And that makes no sense. Like, and, and you know that that makes no sense because none of the journalists who were telling that story lived in Western Sydney and probably had never been west of Newtown, right? And I think... Um, and I think what that speaks to is a, is a much more endemic problem, which is that you have a very narrow class of people who run the media and who work in it, who live in very similar suburbs, who have a very similar set of social networks, who care about certain issues and are oblivious to other issues. And I think that is becoming more and more obvious over time because things like social media let those who don't control the, the older platforms say, hey, why aren't you covering this? And then occasionally you get something like an election which proves how fundamentally disconnected most reporting was from how most people felt. And when you say, like, there's a class of, of journalists, like, what do you mean in that sense? Like, newsrooms are very white. Very... Yeah, I, I mean, Ernst & Young did that study, like, five years ago that said, you know, the average journalist is a 35-year-old man who lives in Bondi, right? Um, so it's, like, super specific. It's not just... And, and like, you know, again, this is not a dig at any individual person. This is a structural problem that it's not just that most newsrooms are, are largely white. In Sydney, they tend to live in the eastern suburbs or the north shore. In Melbourne, they live in the inner north or the inner south. They are 
they tend to be tertiary educated. They tend to, um, you know, interact with other tertiary educated people. Uh, and that is one part of Australia. It's a relatively narrow part of Australia. And I think a large part of these issues exist and are exacerbated by the fact that it is increasingly clear how out of touch our industry is with most Australians. Mm. And the point you make about where they live is spot on. Somebody said to me during the election campaign that how is it that there are so many former journalists working for the independents, and they were certainly in Melbourne and I understand mm. in, in Sydney as well, that's because they live with them. Yeah. That's where they live. <laughs> yeah. They live in those wealthier, highly educated suburbs where the independents live. Oh, and there's a whole um, backlash at, at the ABC at the moment. The ABC has announced it's moving its headquarters to Parramatta and a large number, which is the geographic centre of Sydney, the population centre of Sydney, and much closer to enormous parts of the population. But for 90% of ABC journalists who live in Bondi and Mossman, it's really frustrating for them. <laughs> they're to not being forced <laughs> to... They're not going to be forced to live there, but they might have to commute. Yeah, they might have to commute, yeah. I made that number up. I don't know if it's 90%. It could be 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Is part of this sort of feeling, is it like a bit stirred up? Like, did it really used to be better, I think, is, is something that I wonder. Like, mm. there's this feeling that the media used to be better, def like, used to be better resourced, used to be better staffed, but did the quality of the reporting actually used to be better? Have we seen a decline in that? You're the oldest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, a long Sorry. shot. Um, yeah, that's true. It certainly used to be better resourced. There were, uh, I think, um, the journalists these days are being asked to do too much. Mm. Um, the various media, though, have reacted in different ways to uh, the structural challenges they face. And when um, News Corp, for example, if they're losing money or not doing so well, they sack journalists. Um, the Guardian, on the other hand, um, made about $7 million a couple of years ago and then a million dollars last year, and that's because they invested that money in journalism. And you get a better result that way. So they're not all falling by the wayside. But I think the, the, the biggest change in terms of how we kind of see the media is through the 24-hour news cycle. Mm. And and really, um, that's the, the big change in, in, in my kind of consumption of the media since I left Insiders, is that I just don't consume it in, in the same way. I mean, but when I do, during election campaigns or something, it's just mind-boggling that, <laughs> that for 24 hours that you can't, you can't get enough content mm -hmm. uh, to fill 24 hours and you go in search of these nuggets and all you're getting is this tedious, monotonous, repetitive, cliché commentary <laughs> um, that they all seem to get from the same source. Mm -hmm. um, they're all saying the same thing. Um, so I think it's that kind of, um, you know, it's the overconsumption thing that um, um, that's, that's the problem with, uh, with so much of the media now. I think we've seen that a lot in the last few days, not to, you know, but there's been a lot of Queen coverage in that 24-hour <laughs> news cycle. I don't know how many Queen stories you can fit into, you know, 72 hours of coverage. Well, but... there's going to be about 10 more days of it and <laughs> yeah. then another three till our day of morning, so trust me, there's going to be more. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to the day five angles on the story. Someone well, they're moving real... the casket a bit, so they'll change the backdrop. <laughs> there was, I can't remember who it was, so apologies. Uh, someone had a very funny tweet, which I think was also very insightful, where they said the, the entire media industry has been preparing for this day for so long they had nothing to do but make these stories have them sitting in the archives and then they felt like they had to get them all out 
And I think that's pretty clear. That's what's going on. I like the tweet from the shovel um, this morning when the headline was um, a man who spoke briefly with the Queen 20 years ago <laughs> was interviewed for half an hour on the ABC, you know. <laughs> but what bothers me about it is I, I know the royal family has traditions and they go back a while, but insiders had a tradition as well. And that was that um, it was insiders casual. We don't wear ties on insiders. After 21 years, they broke that tradition this morning. And that's, know, a, that's outrageous. That's actually well. outrageous. I was very disappointed with oh, that. Wow. <laughs> um, I am going to ask a question from the audience. And just to say, the questions are on my phone. I'm not just rudely <laughs> checking my phone. Um, how, okay, there's this one for Janine. Do you think the Australian has lost its way? Well, I started at The Australian. It was a very different paper. I think it has, like most of the media, turned from a newspaper into more opinion. I find it very hard to read these days. I mean, their obsession with the ABC at one stage before I cancelled my subscription, I found something like 12 stories. They were in the, you know, the business section, the political section, and then blow me down... The sports section had a story on something and there was an ABC attack in the middle of that. And so they did... We used to know the difference between, you know, opinion and what was a news story. And there are still some very good journalists there. They break stories. They do some good journalism. And we should celebrate all newspapers that are still getting an audience these days. But unfortunately, there are times... And a lot depends on an editor too, a good editor. And when we talk about bad media... There's always been bad journalists mm. and there's always been good journalists mm. and, you know, that's not changed. It's, it's become um, more agenda-driven and ideologically driven than ever. It's, um, there's no doubt that it, it just takes a, it, its own political um, line to the point where it's um, sort of neoliberal on the economy, it's neoconservative on foreign policy, it's, um, they want minimal action around climate change, you, you have to support the United States and Israel no matter what, and if you even individual steps out of line in that regard, they're going to be brutally attacked. Um, so I think it's reached the point where you're entitled to say that they are, in a sense, a political movement. And that being the case, I think the mainstream media have got to, the rest of them have to kind of face up to that. And particularly the ABC, I think, should now say, OK, well, if that's, first of all, make a judgment. And if you agree with that, that that's essentially what it's become. And they have to be more discerning in the way that they follow stories that are run in The Australian because they're run for a purpose. And they're not run in the way that the rest of the media... Um, Hold on a minute, though, Barry. The AFR was one of the few that supported Scott Morrison in the election. They yep. run all those agendas you talked about yep. are the AFR's agenda too. Yeah, well, that's part of the reason why you won't find um, the old Fairfax and Nine newspapers um, fighting it back against the criticism that, um, that the Australian is only too ready to, to uh, heap on them. But, but when the, the ABC makes these judgments, though, they have to make it, in, I think, in the light of that reality now. And... It's, the Australian doesn't sell many copies, like 100,000 or something, which is not much, but everybody within the inner sanctum of politics, whether you be the, the public servant or the politicians, the staff, the lobbyists, they all read it. Everybody reads it and they're all influenced by it. And so the ABC, if there are morning radio and television programs, will feed into any political interview a story that's on page one of The Australian, you know, whether whether they make... And they should be more discerning about it, make a judgment as to whether this is just a 24-hour contribution from The Australian um, to 
further their agenda or is it a legitimate political story? I just think it's time for them to be, um, you know, be a little more sceptical about uh, following up some of their mm. stories. It's kind of interesting what you're saying, Oz, about the newsrooms being so far away from, you know, what most of Australia is like. And then, again, Barry, what you're saying, what is being read in those sort of halls of power is very concentrated. I mean, I don't think the Australian is read particularly broadly outside of those circles. Yeah, I think people would be, like, a little bit dismayed to know how insular newsroom decision-making is. And I think, Barry, you're also, again, spot on there. Like, I've been in multiple media organisations that you would never accuse of being on the right side of the spectrum where editors say, oh, this story was on page one of the other, what's our follow to it? And that's a news instinct, right? It's a news instinct to see what other uh, competitors have and and what's your angle on it. But if what's on page one of the Australian isn't there because it's a news decision or because of it's because of the fact that it's a genuine news story, but it's there because an editor or someone wants to run a political campaign targeting an issue or a person, that shouldn't be followed by anyone. But I think too often it is. And I think we were talking before about whether the olden days were better versus now. I, I think there's bits that are good and bad, but I think what we've got now, this is this problem where there are fewer people and fewer voices and yet more space to fill. And that's a real dilemma because literally you have a demand for 24-hour news which requires you to look at outlets like this, Australian, to look at what the Herald Sun's doing, to look at what the Daily Telegraph is doing, to look at what Ben Fordham's saying at 2GB, what, what Neil Mitchell's saying at 3AW, to look at all of those things and kind of fill that gap. And I think that, like, I get so... I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to romanticise, you know, the 70s or the 80s because newsrooms were even more homogenous then in terms of gender and, and you know, and, and, and race than they are now. But I hear stories from some of my colleagues where they would, like, f get paid twice as much as me to write one story a, a, a month, you know. And now and now journalists, we, we say that it went from being one paper a day to the internet and journalists would file one or two stories a day. Now one of the most read things on every news website is the 24-hour live blog. So journalists don't just file once a week or once a day. There are journalists whose entire job, their entire career has been filing... 40 to 50 times a day. Just on an olden day story and picking up what Barry says about, said about um, being sceptical and following up other papers, it's always been thus in news conference, but one of the great old editors of The Australian, Les Hollings, used to worry because we were always beaten by the Herald. And I remember one day they gleefully, the news editor said, he said, oh, we've been beaten again, look at it. And they said, no, it's all right, Les, the story's wrong. And he said, we're being beaten on stories that are wrong now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that's something I see a lot on Twitter and I actually want to talk about Twitter at some point because I feel like that feeds into newsroom conversation maybe as much as the front page of the Oz does. But there seems to be this real frustration among a, a certain group of people on Twitter that journalists don't go hard enough against certain powerful people. Um, and then what you hear in newsrooms is, we would, but we will get sued into the ground. Um, and I wonder, like, how much, like, the defamation laws in Australia are kind of playing into holding the media back from doing what it's supposed to do, right? Like, hold power to account, um, do those stories that I'm sure, you know, everyone on this panel 
wants to do and everyone wants to read. Um, like there have been reforms to the DEFO laws, but it still seems like it's a huge part of the conversation in Australia about how you go after, you know, a big story mm. to the panel. The, um, <laughs> that is certainly true in the case of Crikey being sued by, um, uh, by the Murdochs in the sense that had that been written in the United States, they, they wouldn't have a case mm. and they wouldn't bother with it. Um, but it's because the laws are different here that they feel they can they can go ahead and try and make an example of uh, of crikey. So that that's certainly true that there's a bit of skittishness around. But there's also a, a lack of political courage too on the part of some of the political parties. Like I've been mystified for weeks as to why the mainstream media were not at least curious about what went on when the Governor-General gave a PowerPoint display to Scott Morrison and then got $18 million to be distributed through some organisation that had no staff. But the, the idea was that they were going to set up some sort of leadership, uh, young leadership scholarship or whatever, and he, he got the $18 million. Now, what happened to that money? Has it been spent? Has any, is, is there something in place? Uh, they, who, who qualifies um, for this? Now, finally, I mean, the Saturday paper got something out and now they're, they're, they're studying. And I was repeatedly told when I read this with, raised it with journalists that Anthony Albanese's um, approach to these things is we're not raising it. We don't want to upset the Governor-General. We don't want to be, a, you know, the political party that looks like they're um, having a fight with, um, uh, with the Governor-General and probably his timing was pretty solid on that one in a, in a sense. But but that was the sort of thinking that that's that's your job. That, that's the media's job. It's not ours. You go out and you do that and you get your hands dirty uh, around those things. It's, um, it's, it's kind of interesting the way these things develop and, and how much the journalists seem to know about the strategy. Mm. Just on that the they ever pass on to us. On the 80 million, to be fair, it was raised in Senate estimates in April, and I think it was Channel yeah. 7 was one of the few. There was a reporter there who actually reported it at the time. You can only do so much, and going to the issue, I think defamation is the greatest threat to, to certainly mainstream journalism. Um, it's politicians who have parliamentary privilege. You try and get them to do some of the stuff we cannot do. Um, it, it is just impossible. Look at the Ben Robert Smith case at the moment. Not only is it $25 million, there's very few crikeys over there. This is going to be the biggest case in Australia. And let's just remember, after Nick McKenzie's incredible stories, there was the Brereton Review. Yeah. We could have a case where Fairfax could lose the defamation case and something else could come out further that has come out in a government review. I remind people that Eddie Obeid successfully sued Fairfax and Kate McClymont years before ICAC brought out what was proven to be true. Mm. And every day the Nick McKenzies, the Adele Fergusons, the Kate McClymonts can only do those stories because they have the backing of large media organisations. So when I see the Twitterverse attacking mainstream media and why aren't you doing this, I say... You know, where do you think this is going to come from? Because you can be sued on Twitter too now and they're going to learn. It is absolutely incredible. The Crikey case will be a test. Let's see where it goes. Mm. I mean, Oz, uh, obviously there are, you know, live legal proceedings, so we'll tread judiciously, but the the Crikey versus Lachlan Murdoch case, like what are your thoughts on how that might play out? Or I guess, you know, if Crikey loses, like what is the stakes for mm. Australian media? What I think is really interesting is that Australian defamation law, other than the recent reforms to make it slightly better, um, hasn't changed in a little while. 
but the discussions around it and its general knowledge of it have really, really ramped up. And I think what that shows is that when there are high-profile defamation cases, and I think the, Jeff the Jeffrey Rush one was one in particular, regardless of a legal change, just that result, the sheer amount of money that it cost has a real resounding chilling effect across society, so the kinds of people that might be whistleblowers as well as within newsrooms, right? So people who don't necessarily understand how, even though it's extremely hard to, to allege bad things about someone publicly in the media, it is still possible, it still does happen, there are risks involved, but I've spoken to so many, like, sources on on me too stories on, on corruption stories who are convinced that if they put their name to a story they'll be sued and bankrupted and that will be the end of it and i've spoken to a lot of journalists and even some editors who are just a bit cowed i think and i don't mean that in a negative way to attack them i think newsrooms as we've said have less money than they've ever had before and so every big high profile defamation loss regardless of the merits of that individual case, just reverberates around the industry and around society. How that relates to the Crikey case is really interesting because I, 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 that wasn't necessarily a Nick McKenzie or Adele Ferguson examination of allegations of corruption. It was a, an opinion story. And it's kind of absurd that someone's opinion about uh, Lachlan Murdoch means that they could get sued. But that is how the law works here. And newsrooms do have to make decisions a lot of the time around, I know that you want to say that. I know that that's true. But the potential consequences in terms of what this means for us losing money and having to sack journalists and the chilling effects across society mean that we can't publish this. I think it's very interesting that Crikey decided to go to the wall on this particular piece. Um, I don't have any legal knowledge about what might happen, but if they lose, if Lachlan Murdoch wins, expect to see way fewer opinion pieces that criticise anyone with any wealth in this country. Mm. And I think that's a sad result. Well, opinion pieces that criticise someone, anything that stops free speech or, or being able to talk about it, especially really powerful people telling the truth would be negative. But on the other hand, I was going to say, I think the, the pendulum has swung too far to opinion because it's cheap. We've got far less actual news. There's, there's investigations cost a lot of money. So opinions become very cheap and we're getting more and more opinion mixed in, as I say in the Australia, mixed in on television. Um, so that is another problem, I think, for journalism, that opinion's just easy. And, you know, it used to be something you'd have to have years of experience before you felt like you could, but everybody's got an opinion now. It seems like the the issue that the media is facing at the moment is not this existential crisis around, like, financial collapse. Like, it seems like that has sort of stabilised, you know, uh, Nine Publishing saw a very uh, healthy earnings uh, this Record year. Record profits for yeah. Nine Publishing. If it doesn't lose $25 million in a defamation. Yes. I, but I, I wonder if the opinion, that it was an excuse for a long time, you know, we don't have any money, we don't have any resources, mm. um, clickbait analysis, that's cheaper. Do you think the media became a bit addicted to that and is now using it um, to plug holes where it probably should be doing more investment? I think the answer is yes. I think Janine is right. I think opinion and analysis is cheaper and it gets higher engagement than, than thorough, uh, unfortunately, a lot of thoroughly reported news. But I think we're actually in the middle of a shift of that. I think the Australian media landscape over the past couple of decades has been 
scram the editors and owners have been scrambling to figure out models that work. I think they've kind of figured those out now. And I think they've figured out that like cheap online news that's low quality offered up for free or next to free is not really a model anyone wants. Why would someone subscribe to a newspaper that is giving them what they're getting for free on the Daily Mail or news.com.au? And I think seeing uh, the Herald and the Age kind of pivot strongly towards premium offerings that are based on subscriptions. The Guardian, whilst a free offering, uh, leverages quite a lot of donations from the public, Crikey's subscription-based model. I think that, whilst not returning to the you know so-called rivers of gold that classifieds delivered, provides a more stable and sustainable income stream. Um, but I think you're totally right, Madison, in your question that all the things that propped up the industry for the last 10 years, which is kind of clickbait or like, you know, on one hand, uh, racism is good. On the other hand, racism is bad kind of opinion stuff will need to like be recalibrated. I think there was a lot of thinking in that way. And now you'll start, I think, or maybe I just hope that you'll start to see a little bit of that wash away as people realize people aren't going to pay for it. They'll pay for investigations. They'll pay for thorough news and commentary. I think what the, the, the problem that the major um, newspapers had initially was that they didn't really get a grip on the digital Thing. It took them too long mm. to appreciate. They were resisting so much um, of, of what needed to be embraced. Now I think they're, they're all pretty much in, in line with that. But the, the the problem now with the with the in the digital era is that the the newspapers, the editors, everybody knows precisely how many times your story has been read, precisely um, to the nearest one. And <laughs> the the risk with that is that well now they know what sells. <laughs> And unfortunately, what sells sometimes is crap. Mm -hmm. And and so um, the, the temptation will be there to, to lean towards, you know, the clickbaits, but but also to to fashion their, their journalism around uh, around readership. You know, it's like the ABC, the, the, the editors always tell you that we, we don't, we're not there for ratings. Um, well, they're obsessed with them. And and it's important to them that, that people watch watch their product. And if they don't, they move on and they find something that people do want to watch. And, and so that, that's, that could be something that, um, that might manifestly change um, um, the, the type of um, news presentation we get down the track because it's uh, once they know precisely what they're reading, that could be a real trap. But this also comes to what you were saying about the coverage of the Queen at the moment. If it rates and that's what people want, they are going to keep... They'll be wearing black ties on the ABC for the next mm -hmm. 10 days. They'll be giving us... And the perfect example was COVID. You could talk to people on the street who said, you and the damn media, you never shut up. It was 24-7. Ratings, revenue, everything went through the roof. Newspaper yeah. sales were up. It was the best thing that happened mm -hmm. to every media organisation, even though most people told us we were leading the scare campaign. It was just terrible. You couldn't find any other news. So... It is a bit hard to please everyone. Well, that is, someone has asked that question. Is oh. the problem the audience or is the problem the media? <laughs> it's a really, really good question, I think. Like, yeah. I think uh, I grapple with this a lot. I think the media has a lot of power, but so do readers. And I mean, like, in every news organisation I've ever worked in, when you do audience surveys about what people want more of, they say... I think you should do way more Indigenous affairs coverage. I think it's a shame that Australia, from every perspective, right, doesn't engage with the issues impacting Indigenous communities and policy debate around that consistently and everywhere that I've worked. As soon as you put the word Indigenous in a headline, no one clicks it. Mm. And that's not about the news not 
tackling the issues properly. That's about what Australians want to read and don't want to read. Um, and it's kind of a frustrating thing to talk about because there isn't a fix for that. Um, but I think you can't deny that a lot of what we deride as the media offering up clickbait exists and is successful because it's what people want to read. Mm. And it is not just a new thing. Like tabloids in Australia and around the world sold copies on salacious crime and sex stories throughout history. That's just a truism of how the media works. And I guess the thing is how do you balance the fact that that's what people want to read and you've got to give them some of that stuff but kind of use that perhaps to fund the other interesting things. Well, luckily uh, politicians give us lots of yeah. sex scandals still. So a lot of crime and sex. I remember being, when I was first in a newsroom, an editor said to me, if it bleeds, it leads mm-hmm. um, because people love car crash stories, crime stories. Well, what's the biggest growth in podcasts? True crime True stories. Crime. They still love a good murder, yeah, even if it's 30 years old. I still think that there's a lot of despair around, a hell of a lot, and a bit of hope might be a good idea. Like mm. if, if they started to just consciously make an effort to start putting stories around hope and positivity in, and give it prominence, they might be surprised by, by the result because I think we're all drowning in despair. Mm. That's, that's all you get in some cases. The interesting thing is people love extremes on either end. And like I, I do um, the, the culture news editor at the Herald and the Age at the moment and so I look after a lot of our reviews around theatre, film, music, whatever – People will read a review that says, this is one star, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. Or they'll read, this is five stars, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Barely anyone will read three to four star, here's a really thoughtful piece about how it's kind of good but maybe not that good (laughs) and I've got some complicated feelings and you might like it, you might not like it. In a way, that's the more enjoyable piece of writing and journalism. But it doesn't get read. What gets read is, holy shit, this is like Melbourne's best coffee or this is Melbourne's worst sandwich. And that's, I guess, kind of an audience problem. I hope you've published both of those stories. because All of those are real examples. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, on the, on the theme of positivity, let's talk solutions. It is antidote. Um, there's a good question here, which is from Anonymous. Please feel free to put your names on your questions as well. Um, what do you think are some tangible steps to combat the increasing concentration of media ownership between fewer and fewer owners and ideologies in Australia? Well, I, th- I think if, if you're looking for something, we're, we're discussing, you know, what's wrong with the media and how do you fix it? I think, you know, in a word, it's Murdoch. Like, how do you fix that problem? And... <laughs> One way to do it is to have an inquiry into uh, media concentration. It's Look, it's... The, and I'm not suggesting it's going to happen, by the way. Um, but when you look at uh, the fact that Queensland, for example, um, well, it's 70% around the country in, in print media that the Murdoch owns, but in Queensland, it's saturation. Um, that wouldn't be such a problem if um, the ownership was kind of benign. And that does exist, actually. There, there are some benign proprietors uh, in the media. But we have somebody who's so so hands-on, so partisan and, and so agenda-driven. And so um, maybe the excuse to, to look again at this is because things are changing. Um, the way that we consume the media is vastly different to what it was five years ago. Um, but I think that is... Um, that is one, that would be one very worthwhile exercise. But, boy, it would have to take a lot of political courage mm. and I don't think they've got it. Well, not when you have a Prime Minister who actually went to Holt Street, allegedly. I find that bizarre that a Prime Minister... Very recently. ...went there... To kiss the as ring opposed of to Murdoch. calling 
Yeah. I think the Murdochs have been known to be called to the lodge. I yeah. don't think it would be outside the realms of, yep. of possibility. So I don't think we're going to see a Royal Commission. Oh, we did right. actually have an inquiry, Barry. Sarah Hanson Young did have one in the last Parliament. It had recommendations. Um, it's all very well to blame the concentration, and of course it's not ideal, but what's the alternative? We've seen where um, they divested rural papers, where Fairfax is divested, and the new independent owners don't have the financial resources to keep them going in the current climate. That's the problem. Mm. You need to... It's all very well to say divest. Who's going to come in? Who's got the money? Do you want... I remember when Gina Reinhart was looking at buying in. Do we want a Gina? I'm sure Twiggy, the great saviour of everything known to man... <laughs> Trust me, will not be the answer. Um, this is the problem. Where do you go? And the only thing I will say, I know it's bad to say something encouraging about Murdoch, but despite that 70%, despite Sky with its small readership, despite the Telegraph out in the West, the last two elections, they've not only had no impact, the Telegraph, they voted the opposite way they told them to yeah, out West. They, that, so that is yeah. something that says something about the audience and the sense of Australians. Yeah. The, the influence this is waning, isn't it? About yep. The Catherine Deeds piece, it didn't, yep. didn't, uh, the page one puff piece didn't have an impact. Yep. In Victoria, they, they went into bat for Josh Frydenberg yep. and that was an extraordinary puff piece on page one and it still had no impact. People had made up their minds about it. So, so it's, maybe it's uh, encouraging they're wasting their money and having less influence. Yeah, that could be like if it's the, the New South Wales election is coming up if um, if Labor was to win that, and I'm not from New South Wales, I've no idea, but um, if if they were, then every mainland state would be uh, would be run by the Labor Party. So that's, that doesn't suggest that uh, that despite Murdoch's best efforts, that his influence is anywhere near what it was. The thing that annoys me about the inquiry... Sorry, not your... I'm not saying that what you just said annoyed me, but um, <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I find a bit, like, limiting about the idea of a commission or inquiry is we know what the solution already is. Like, we talk about media ownership laws. We used to have laws that said you can't own newspapers and TV stations and radio stations, and governments of both stripes got rid of those laws. So we could just reinstate those laws. Lots of countries have laws that say you can't own, uh, you know, extra... Um, I mean... It, don't clap me, I work for a company that owns newspapers and television stations and radio networks and a streaming platform and... Which is well, the only answer to the strength of Murdoch was the, yeah. the merger of Correct. Nine and Fairfax. Correct. So you do yes. need that. And, and I think to go to your other point, I think it's a really good point because even if you do end up with divestment, you still end up with like six rich people owning the media rather than maybe one or two. And is that a solution? I'm not convinced and I think... It's weird how insular Australia is in debating any kind of policy thing. There's like 200 other countries that deal with the similar issues like this. Countries like Norway have in their constitution clauses that send certain proportions of tax revenue to public interest journalism funds, right, that bankroll public broadcasters that small independent regional news organisations can apply from and get money. And in, in the only real bulwark or alternative source of funding we have to billionaires is us is the public is the government doesn't seem like a crazy idea also we have a government funded abc we have one it could be funded That's a, a tax more, i reckon funded. we could there's also philanthropy i mean what are your thoughts on that there's uh, there is a question that i've lost here but someone's asking about the Duke nielsen institute whether philanthropy is part that of worked it. out really well yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, a very happy ending there yeah. um it was a heap of shit if people did not yeah. understand that <laughs> It was a vanity project, isn't it? Is, I mean, this is slightly aside from what we've talked about, but, I mean, in the US you've seen that some editors have told their newsrooms to get off Twitter, stop tweeting so much. Do you think that's kind of part of this 
problem. Like at the start, Barry, you were talking about tunnel vision, how a lot of reporters missed the bigger stories that were going on in the election. Is is part of this, we just need to kind of get the hell off Twitter? Yeah, look, look, Twitter comes under a lot of criticism, but um, there was a lot of information through the election campaign, or a lot of... I, I got a, a, a fairly strong sense at times of what people were thinking about some of the issues, but I didn't get through mainstream media. But, you know, with Twitter, it's... The, the great advantage of it is that it's not just the media that controls opinion and analysis. It gives everybody a crack. It gives everybody an outlet and a chance to express their views. And I think that's a good thing. And the people who seem to have their noses um, most out of joint around this are journalists. <laughs> I mean, they're always complaining about Twitter. Well, you know, you guys get your, your outlet every day of the week. I mean, it was um, Steve Price wrote that piece the other day that he'd been cancelled. <laughs> Well, he hasn't been cancelled from the project. He's still got his radio program. He's still got his column in the Herald Sun and he's claiming he's been cancelled. So, you know, he thinks it's fine that he has all of these outlets, but Twitter, Twitter's a problem. Well, it, it can be a problem because some people are absolutely appalling and, and they, they attack particularly women um, in, a, in quite a savage way. And so that's, that's the, the downside of the whole thing. But, um, um, but in the end, it's, it's, it's pretty much guided by who you follow. I mean, you can really, if you just want to, want to have your own views reinforced, just restrict your, the, the people you follow to those you agree with. Mm. It's easy. Mm. Do you, I mean, I know that you left Twitter, Oz. Mm. I've never been happier, actually. <laughs> um, but I think, I think there's, that's the, there's the, sounds cliche to say this, but definitely the best thing about Twitter is what Barry said, that it's given people who've been locked out of uh the media or have not been able to have platforms and a voice articulate things. And I think that's really important. I think it's very important for us in the media to face scrutiny from the people we say that we serve. And that, you know, letters to the editor used to be literally the only mechanism for that. Um, and now Twitter uh, is helpful. I think kind of not against bringing back more letters to the editor because I think what that did, if you read something, you got really worked up about it, you had to like find a piece of paper Get your pen, kind of lick the <laughs> tip, whatever you do with pens. I don't, I don't write. Write a letter. Put a put stamp, it in, put on, a stamp it. on it. Walk to the – like there's so many processes and steps that you probably were like, am I really that mad about this column Oz wrote? Maybe not. Um, but on Twitter it's like you can go from seeing a screenshot of a headline on someone else's Twitter feed and then – jump in straight away. And I think there is a um, co corrosive and, and collapsing element to conversation and discourse that, that social media in general, I think, is exacerbated. But that's not to say that it's all bad. I just think that there's a... Yeah, we're in a particularly toxic place. I think journalists need to be a little bit less thin-skinned, but I also think that some of the critics of journalists uh, use, to, use language around media ethics as a frame when really they're just partisan people who don't like what's going on. Yeah. And I think that applies to both the left and the right. I, I at first for years said Twitter was a fad and it would go over. Then I, then I realised it was sticking around and I became quite obsessed with it, as you do. <laughs> then I've sort of got back to a more reasoned approach. Um, very famous journalist uh, Tommy Krauss, I think you'd known Barry Cassie, very respected journalist, the late Tommy Krauss, had a view that you should use Twitter only to positive and encourage other journalists to do things, tell other people to read things. So when he died, I, I tweeted that I was going to try and follow his example. About ooh, three weeks later, I said, don't know how you did this. <laughs> Jesus, it's hard to be positive and just whatever. I do still try, but it is damn hard. Mm. 
Um, I want to get to a couple of these questions because there's some good ones. Um, there's a teacher and a young person who have both asked similar questions, which I think is interesting, um, is about a lot of young people getting their news off social media. Um, and uh, one of the young people has asked, uh, you know, how do I know what to trust? How do I navigate that? Um, and the teacher has asked, you know, how, what should I be teaching young people about media literacy? Um is that part of the solution, kind of getting... Everyone's not looking at me. Stuff. I'm not even that young anymore. Um, but It's the blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, It hides the receding hairline. Um, I think it's a really important question. I think there's a huge problem here, and the Johnny, Johnny Depp Amber Heard case was a really interesting case study of this, where most of the consumption of that news story happened via TikTok and YouTube for a large section of the population, particularly younger people, and I spoke to so many people who were convinced that it was Amber Heard who had sued Johnny Depp to try and get money because that's what women do is that they make up lies and sue people to get money. And I explained to them, no, she has been sued and she can not make any money out of the situation. And it was an in insight into how news looks very similar on platforms like YouTube and TikTok to opinion and to just people kind of giving their spin and analysis on things. So it's a really interesting problem to solve. Younger people are increasingly likely to get their news not from news websites or television or radio, but from YouTube, Instagram and TikTok. But what the, uh, what is actually news there, which is designed to look like and fit into that platform, looks very similar to a random person making a video. So I think literacy has has kind of dissolved a bit there and we haven't really figured out how to help people understand what is real news and what is just someone making stuff up to pursue an agenda but the bigger problem is how few particularly in Australia media organizations are investing in that place things like the ABC or the not things like the ABC was a leader at moving online at a time when other news organizations weren't it had iview in 2008 seven years before Netflix existed in Australia and now it is, I think, severely under-investing in YouTube and TikTok. And I don't like those companies, but you can't deny the fact that that is where huge amounts of people under 30 are finding out about the world. And I'm just using the ABC as an example. Every company, my company, everyone, is not doing enough to think about what should go on those platforms. I think that's step one. And then step two is helping people understand why the ABC on YouTube is worth watching and why Joe Rogan, who's just making stuff up, is not. But I think you need to do both those things. It's a big ask. <laughs> um, there's a, quite a few questions about climate here. So just kind of pulling them together. Um, why do you think that climate change, which is such a huge issue for Australia, we're right at this extreme point of vulnerability. We're also very involved in exporting fossil fuels. Why is that not a story that's leading the news in Australia most days? Why is it a page four story? I, um, I just have a bit of a theory, and that's all it is, about um, why the ABC, for example, didn't pay a whole lot of attention to climate change during the election campaign. And we constantly heard from uh, from journalists right across the board, but the ABC as well, um, that it's an inner-city issue. It kept coming up all the time, an inner-city issue. The independents who won, um, some of them are very close to the cities, but they're also part of these wealthier suburbs um, in, if, if, you know, Victoria, it goes all the way out to Black Rock and Sandringham. Um, here it goes out to um, all, all the way out 
um, to the beaches. Um, so it's um, and before that, Indi in Victoria, uh, when Cathy McGowan first won, she ran hard on climate change. And there you're talking about places like Wangaratta and Myrtleford and Wodonga. And you know, New England climate change. And Tony and Rob Oakeshott, they, they were in Yeah, the they, they resonated in those areas. But I have a feeling that the, the, the ABC and that I know that these discussions go on internally about, you know, the reason we, we said before, but they're moving out to Parramatta, right, yeah. as some sort of gesture. Well, the Oz have been inviting them to do that for ages, so they've finally <laughs> given them a win and they've gone out to Parramatta. But it, it's this sense that they fear... Um, that the, the, the Oz and others are always accusing them of being obsessed with climate change when they're not, mm. um, and they certainly weren't during the election campaign, and so they fear that, they fear that kind of attack. But the other thing is that they, 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 they seem to be targeting the outer suburbs. Like, like a political party would target a constituency, the ABC is now chasing an audience. Now, it, you shouldn't be chasing as an ABC, as a publicly funded organisation, chasing a particular audience. You should be for all Australians. But I just get a sense that they are... And that's part of the reason why I don't think climate change was as prominent as it should have been. Interesting. Any thoughts on the I've spoken heaps, I don't mention. What do you reckon? Um, well, I think it goes back to what you said, that uh, it, on Indigenous stories mm. in the paper, I think people say, yes, mm. climate change is our number one issue, but when they've got the chance of looking at an Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, mm. salacious sex story, that's going to be the clickbait. When they've yep. got the theatre of... A gaffe or whatever. I mean, it sounds good in theory. We know we, we should believe in this. We know we do. But it goes back to the basic of the media. Is the problem the audience or is the problem the media? It's a vicious circle of giving them what they want. What they say they want often doesn't translate into what you need to keep media going. Well, I'm just going to redirect you to the antidote side of things <laughs> um, by just asking finally, I guess, what each of you feel hopeful about in the Australian media? If there's something that you can point to, maybe it's an outlet, it's a reporter, it's something that has happened um, that you think is a good thing, um, maybe it's something people should subscribe to, um, uh, give some hope to sort of end the session. Uh, maybe, Janine, we can start with you. Um, look, I think I get back, I really think the defamation is important and I'm hoping that uh, Fairfax wins the Ben Robert Smith case. But I am encouraged every day I see my mates, Kate McClymont, Adele Ferguson, Nick McKenzie, still doing investigative journalism. They're Subscribe to The Age and Herald is what you're saying. Well, I am. I, that was going to be my line. Pay for content. I get really annoyed on Twitter where people see a fantastic story that's cost a fortune and they get all outraged. This is behind a paywall. How dare you? Unfortunately... Those things cost money. So it encourages me that while we are st we still have media organisations who invest in it, not just Fairfax, everyone, or this, what do they call now, nine. Um, so that encourages me. And there's still good journalists out there and they should be the ones we look to and read and are the hope. And let's face it, there's still schools pumping out journalists. People want to be journalists. So that encourages me. Oz, what, uh, what gives you some hope? <laughs> I mean, you know me pretty well. I'm one of the most cynical people around. I don't know if I have heaps of hope, but I, I, I think I think there are so many um, smart people working in Australian journalism. I think they might not always be the most prominent. They might not be the most high profile. They might not get the biggest salaries. They are probably working contract shifts here and there. Um, a lot of them come from the kinds of backgrounds that they've never been allowed to do this kind of work before. Uh, and they're killing it. And 
it shifts almost every day. And I think eventually, even if they don't do it for the right ethical or moral reasons, the people that run news organisations will realise that the commercial future lies in newsrooms that are more reflective of what Australia actually looks like and how Australia thinks. And, and that goes back to what I was saying at the start. Australians clearly, the way that they voted this time, are not totally backwater people who don't care about the climate or don't care about justice or whatever, and hopefully newsrooms will reflect that diversity as well. And I think the signs are a little bit hopeful. Barry, final thoughts? Yeah, it's, um, you know, coming from me, I'm sort of like uh, the classic analogue body locked or trapped in a digital world. But, uh, but I, what, I, what I have observed among young people, and particularly in journalism but in other areas, that they're, they're better informed than I was when I was in my 20s and I think better informed than the immediate last generation. I don't know where they're getting their information from, <laughs> um, but I really do think that's the case and, and that gives me hope. And also on, on this idea that you, you start writing stories that are more positive, and some of the regional newspapers have tried this and, and they've said to their journalists, if you want to be on page one, what we're going to do is run three or four positive stories every week and put it somewhere on page one. And that encouraged the journalists to go out and look at uh, look at the world with a different perspective, and they were delivering. Now, give that a chance. might work. There we mm. go. A little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah. um, everyone, please join me in thanking our panel, Osman Farouki, Janine Parrott and Barry Hussey. Watch Talks from Antidote 2022 on Stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.